Welcome to the Unconventional Path, entrepreneurship and innovation stories and ideas. Hello, I'm Bela Musitz. And I'm Mike Wasserman. Hey, Mike, did you know that this is episode number 99? You know, that's a lot of content. So we thought today we would do something a little bit different. And Mike and I are going to interview each other. We thought it would be a bit of fun for each of us to share some of our background and history with you. So what do you think, Mike? What do you think of this idea? Uh, you know, it's a little bit crazy, and I'm not the biggest fan of always talking about myself, Bela, but I agree with your logic that it's probably, we've had a lot of listener questions asking more about us and how we got started, so it's probably fair that we, uh, we do an episode on this. So sure, let's go for it. You want me to start? Yeah, sounds good. Why don't you uh, why don't you kick it off, Mike? All right. So, Bela, I'll start by asking you the same two questions that um, that you ask or we ask almost all of our guests. Uh, so, first, Bela, when you're at a social event and meet someone new and they ask you what you do, how do you answer? So these days, that's that's probably as as easy as it has ever been in my life, <laughs> because I say I am retired, and 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 then that usually leads to oh oh what do you do? Uh, and, uh, you know, as you know, I've been doing a lot of fishing, fly fishing, and I've been doing a bit of sailing and, uh, some wood projects. Uh, but I still dabble around in all sorts of, uh, new and exciting and entrepreneurial things. Um, I still get a fair number of, uh, phone calls or contacts or conversations with people, typically younger entrepreneurs who are looking for some advice to start a business or they're in the process of starting their business or they just started their business. So I probably do a half dozen of those types of interactions a month. And uh, I find those really enjoyable, having those conversations and discussions with, with folks who are, you know, starting out their business or, you know, trying to figure out how to grow it. Um, and of course, I do this podcast with you. Uh, which is uh, all 99 episodes have been fun and uh, enjoyable. And I got to meet, you know, got to meet a whole bunch of interesting and enjoyable people to have conversations with. So, um, yeah, that's that's sort of how I answer that question, I guess. True. Now, as you look back on your career and you've been retired, what, a year now, right? If that. Yes, just right? just about a year. Um, what are you most proud of as you look back? Well, you know, Mike, that's a that's a really good question. And I I say to you that the thing I'm most proud of is my family and the relationships that have been a result of all of the things that I have done. Um, you know, I look at the things that I've done, whether when I worked at large companies, the companies I've started, being in a venture capital business. Uh, to me, those are those are sort of paths along the way of meeting and interacting with interesting people. And in many cases, doing something that helps other individuals. Some of the products I've worked on were things that made people's lives better. I, you know, I did a medical startup. Um, I ran a, a bicycle manufacturing business for a while. So, you know, that, that gave people pleasure when they could, they could buy a, uh, a bicycle and, and ride it around. I mean, it's not all that earth shattering. Um, but I, I think it's really the relationships uh, that have come from those, those business experiences, those work experiences. Um, you know, to some extent, work 
enables you to do other things. It provides you with some disposable income, hopefully. Uh, once, it, once, you, once you make enough money to sort of take care of your food and shelter piece, it provides you some disposable income, enables you to do other things. Uh, and at the same time, if you can get work to be interesting, then that is really, really cool. Because then, then, then you don't really look at it as, well, the only reason I'm doing this is to provide some disposable income. I'm doing it because it's interesting and it also provides me with some disposable income. And the disposable income piece is, the, is oftentimes the, the piece where you can then engage in, in different ways with your family and friends, right? You can do things as a family unit um, that, that are oftentimes fun and exciting, et cetera. And I'm not talking about, you know, extravagant traveling around the world. I'm talking about, you know, going. Some of the greatest memories I have are going to the beach with my two sons and my wife and my parents and having a, a, a week at the beach when the kids were, you know, five, six, seven, eight years old. And that was just a blast. And, you know, that cost a couple thousand bucks to do it. We rented a house, et cetera. Um, and, and work enabled me to do that. But at the same time, I really enjoyed the work that I was doing. That's cool. You mentioned your parents, Bela. Um, you always ask, is there a family history of entrepreneurship and kind of how did you get interested? So I ask the same question uh, to, to you. How did you how did you start being an entrepreneur and was there a family history? So my father, my father and his brother owned a business in, in uh, Budapest, Hungary. Uh, and and so they owned a business where they uh, reconditioned and remanufactured uh, large diesel engines, whether they're for ships or for trucks or, you know, earth moving equipment, et cetera. And my dad's an engineer, as am I. And uh, so he and his brother had that business. And then in the revolution in 1956, you know, we left all that behind and we came here to, to this country as, as refugees when I was a little kid. And my father never had his own business here, uh, but he worked for some large companies. They worked for some small companies during that during his work experience. Uh, he started his very first job when we came to this country was for Mack Trucks uh, as, a, as an engineer for Mack Trucks. And then he worked for a couple small companies. And then he spent the latter part of his career working for IBM. Um, and, and so I think it was from my father, I got this notion of, of doing things that you're interested in and sort of driving yourself to, to do things that are interesting. And he and I did a lot of things together, but there were always, we didn't play baseball together, right? We didn't, we didn't go to the movies together. We made something together, right? We, we, we built something together down the basement. I, I can clearly remember he and I built uh, a little rowboat, you know, out of wood down the basement. We built a fiberglass kayak when I was older. Um, we bought a, a, a wrecked from a junkyard. We bought a Lotus, which is a car, a Lotus Elan, a 1970 Lotus Elan that had been in an accident in the junkyard, and we fixed it up. Uh, so those were all the experiences I, I had with my dad. So they were all sort of project-focused, and you're building something or you're making something. And, and so I think that, that had a lot to do with my psyche in that 
the job I have, all the jobs I've had have been sort of project focused. We're making something, we're building something, we're delivering something, and there's an end product or there's a multiple number of end products. And 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 I think that that sort of set the stage for for that for that drive. So that fits. I mean, you really have taken an unconventional path. I mean, maybe trace for us a little bit kind of the path that you took. You already kind of talked about the early years as, um, you know, coming to the U.S. Uh, as a young child, right? And um, obviously um, uh, growing up, right? Did you grow up always in in the Schenectady area? Oh, no, no, no. We moved, we moved around a fair amount. So when we came to this country, uh, we lived in Allentown, Pennsylvania, so there was a, a fairly sizable Hungarian community uh, in Allentown, Pennsylvania. And so we had a sponsor family because we came here as refugees, right? And we had a family that sort of sponsored us once we got here and they sort of took us in for a little bit. Um, and uh, we lived with them for a very short period of time. And um, my father got a job right away at Mack Truck. Um, and so we lived, um, we lived there for a while, uh, at, uh, bought a house and, um, lived in Allentown. <clears throat> and then there was a strike at, uh, Mack truck. Uh, one of the, one of the big unions, I, I forget which one it was, went out on my uh, strike and, you know, so you don't cross the picket line. So it basically shut the whole place down. And I, I remember my dad was like, I, 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 you know, he was like, what do you mean? I can't go to work. <laughs> and, and he actually started looking for another job, quickly found another job. And, uh, so we lived in around the Allentown kind of Pennsylvania, Eastern Pennsylvania area for a number of years. And then, uh, he moved around a fair bit, uh, to so a couple different small companies. And then we lived in New York city for a number of years. I think it was about two years. We lived in New York city. And, um, then my father got a job at IBM. Uh, IBM was in a big growth spurt in sort of the late sixties and seventies. And I, my, uh, my dad got a job there and we moved to upstate New York around Poughkeepsie Fishkill area. And, uh, we lived there for a long period of time. That's sort of where I went to junior high, high school. My parents lived there while I was in college and then a number of years after that, uh, IBM was opening a new plant, a new facility in Charlotte, North Carolina. And uh, my dad wanted to move where it was a little bit warmer. Uh, cost of living was a little bit lower than New York State. And they moved, my dad moved down there to help them open up the Charlotte plant. And then he retired there. But I never lived down down there. So, mm-hmm. um, and then once I, once I, became a working, got start working. I, we moved around a lot as well. So my first job out of grad school was, um, at General Electric's research facility, which is in Schenectady. And then from there we moved to Hartford cause I started a business with some other folks and, uh, then moved down to, uh, Yorktown Heights. I got a job at IBM, uh, worked there for a number of years. Then from that went out to California I uh, mm-hmm. started a company out in California and then back uh, to upstate New York where I worked at RPI and then started a venture firm and then started my career as a dean in higher ed 
and then uh, uh, after stepping down from being dean as as a professor. Yeah, that's definitely the unconventional path, Bela, in terms of um, uh, you know all the different stops you made and the different types of businesses. It's it looks nonlinear, but what's the is there a common thread that runs through all of this? So I I would say that in everything I do, I have this this curious mind. I like to learn new things. I like to try new things. So that's what drives me. If it, it it's the 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 changing of the jobs is is not necessarily driven by money or status or by you know job title or span of control responsibility type things. It's driven by huh that sounds interesting. I'm going to go try to do that. <laughs> and and that's what that's what drives me. It's 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 the new experiences, it's trying new things and it's this curiosity. And and so I think one of the other reasons that I haven't spent, you know, my whole life at one company is because after I try it two or three times, I kind of get bored. And and if if a particular organization doesn't grow fast enough, then that it doesn't fulfill my need for for sort of this curiosity, right? One of the great things of when I worked at IBM, it was a large enough corporation that even there, I, I was there 10 years, even there, every two or three years, I had a different job, right? So, so it, was, it was sort of like changing jobs, but I didn't change jobs. I didn't change companies, it just changed jobs. Right. And, and uh, so I think that's what it, for me, that's what it really is. And it's, and it's true in, in sort of my non-work life too, I, I, you know, there's, there's some folks who, who have like one hobby and they, they really love playing golf and they play golf every day and they love doing it all the time. I, I have like 20 different hobbies I enjoy doing. And, and I think that's, you know, again, it's this innate curiosity of learning, discovering and trying new things. Cool. Uh, my last question for you, Bela, is... You know, again, kind of looking back and looking where the world is now, it's a complicated and scary place in a lot of ways. And in the last uh, three months or so during the COVID crisis, we've had a lot of really amazing guests and heard uh, kind of how they're managing and coping. How do you see the world changing, particularly for people who want to be entrepreneurs or people who feel like they're innovative? How should people like this be preparing themselves, whether they're middle of their career or young people? Um, what's the perspective look like from where you sit, Bela? Well, I, I, I think it's very difficult to prepare yourself other than by doing it. So what I mean by that is you, you can only study it so much and, and you learn so much more by actually taking that first step. And then once you take the first step, the second step's easier and the third step's easier. And you learn something in each one of those steps. So you do course corrections. So my point is, number one, you just got, you have to take the step. You have to do it. You can't keep studying it. Don't wait for the perfect idea or the, or the perfect business idea that you're thinking about. You just do it and you'll become smarter because of the fact that you're in the process of doing it and you'll learn and you'll course correct and you'll end up in a better place. I cool. think the other thing that's, that's interesting is that the world is getting flatter, right? It's much easier to do certain things. Like 
there's no way you and I could have reached 15,000 people uh, by interviewing people 10 years ago, right? The, the whole podcast thing didn't exist. And there's lots and lots of examples of technology that has enabled people to reach out and find other individuals. And by that, I mean potential customers, uh, right? We have 15,000 people who are customers of this podcast. And, and so how do you, so that's gotten much easier. That's gotten much easier uh, because of all of the, the technology that has happened. It's also gotten much easier because uh, of, of starting a business in certain areas. Uh, it's easy to, to start a f Facebook page and start selling products. There's a lot of manufacturers. There's a lot of great things you can do. So that's the good news. The bad news is that since it's gotten easier, there's more people doing it, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? So the competition, the opportunity for competition is, has increased. And, and, but I think the key here is almost the whole world is your potential marketplace these days. And with that, it's much easier for you to find your niche. So you can find your niche, the thing that works for you. Um, and your customers, and you can pro provide and service those customers because you can reach those customers these days much easier. And the third thing I'll say is that I think the rate of change is going up dramatically compared to 10 years ago or compared to five years ago even. The rate at which things change, and by and, and what do I mean by by things, what things change? Well, market preferences, people's desires for certain things, um, economic economic things. I mean, look at the COVID thing. Home, boom! It all of a sudden changed the world. Like in the span of two weeks, the world was different. That's unheard of, except if you had like a world war, right? And and so so all of a sudden, businesses had to adapt. So there's all these things that are changing. And you don't know what they're going to change to. You don't know how they're going to change. And I think that being prepared for change and being mentally prepared and then having an organization that is willing to embrace the change so that you can adapt to it, I think is really important. Right? So building your organization in such a way that it embraces change as opposed to fighting change. Because change is going to happen in every everything we do. Love it, Pela. Good words. I like it. Thanks. All right. You want to switch uh, switch chairs here virtually? All right. Sure. So now, Mike. So, why does someone become a professor? Hmm. That's a great question. And in the general sense. I'm not really sure I can answer that because there's so many different people that I know that have become professors for different reasons. They're good at different parts of the job. As you well know, there's many different kind of components to being a professor. And some of it is if you've been a student at a, at a university or a college, you see the teaching side. And that's obviously what's, I think, front and center right now is we switch to online learning mostly and things like this. Uh, and then the side that some most people don't see, but it's really important to at some schools is the research component, which is looking at a question in your field of study and 
trying to find some answers on why things happen the way they do and how to make things better. Um, and then the third part is the university is an institution as a place where people learn and grow, where people can express their ideas. And um, in the traditional U.S. model where kind of kids can become adults, and I know that's a little bit trite, but I think it's for many of us who've gone the traditional route, the university that's in the U.S. when you're 18, you start as a first-year student, you go for four, hopefully maybe five years, get a degree, and then go start your career. Um, for many people, college looks like a two-year community college degree where um, maybe it's all you can afford and you're still kind of feel like figuring out what you want to do. Um, or there's a very narrow focused program that community colleges do great at preparing you for a career. Um, uh, or maybe you're a non-traditional student, um, like some of my relatives, where they went back later in life to, to school and got degrees and switched from a job that didn't need an education to one that did. Um, so you serve all these different needs and you kind of find out what you're good at. So I think there's not a one size fits all answer to that. Um, you know, you look at who you're interested in, I guess, helping and what you're interested in learning and what you're good at and where you can add value. And you kind of weave that into And in my case, it was very random in a lot of ways and not planned. Um, but try to find a niche again, going back to what you said about finding a niche, right? Find a niche, you know, how can I balance this kind of research, teaching and service at the right school, working with the right people, teaching and researching the right things for me, working with the right colleagues and friends, um, all that's different. And then as you know, I, uh, most of our listeners know I immigrated to Germany. Uh, so I went in the other direction that you did at a very different stage of my life. And, um, I was really frustrated by the U.S. system where it costs so much money. The, the, the entry fee essentially is so much and so many families couldn't afford it. And I really viewed myself as part of the, the problem, not part of the solution. And by moving to a country where, not perfect, but there's a lot more access because there's no tuition. Taxes are higher. I take home a lot less money. I teach more hours. Um, but if the financial part isn't things that really stop people from getting a, a degree here in Germany. And I love this about my new home and my new job. Um, so that said, I, I love to teach. Um, I think I'm okay at it. I always try to get better. Uh, I love helping individual students to find their niche and their potential and push them a little bit in a nice way and supportive way to reach and grow. Uh, I like to give people an opportunity to learn. I like to say I don't teach anybody anything. I give people an opportunity to learn and the resources and the tools. Uh, and I love, still love to do research. It's not my primary focus here, but I like to keep an active focus. And then, like, I just helped build a new program in digitalization um, and innovation. And to me, that building a program that's going to serve students and serve the community, the, the regional, national, international employers that need workers that can digitalize processes and that can innovate uh, our way out of big problems. Uh, that to me is really satisfying. So there's kind of a mix is why do general and people in general become a professor to do some of those things, right? And why did I choose to become a professor? Again, I have a mix of things that, you know, I don't think what I do can be replaced by a talking head on YouTube. Maybe some of my students would argue that, but I think that providing these opportunities and these connections and these insights and these is having somebody who knows you to push you a little bit harder to do something challenging um, that you're not going to get on a YouTube video. So I guess that's kind of my long answer to a short question, Bela. Yeah. Yeah. So did, did you, 
get a PhD because it was required uh, for to become a professor, or did you get a PhD because you wanted to take a super deep dive into a particular area? Oh, this is a great question. Okay, so I, you know, again, I'm going to be totally honest. So, um, I, um, I was fortunate enough to um, to go to a great high school, and um, my parents had gotten divorced about I think I was 15, um, and I wound up um, kind of getting a little in a little bit of trouble and kind of asked to leave my uh, public school in the small town in, in Michigan. And my parents looked at a couple of different private schools and I actually went to the, my, the one that I didn't want to go to. And my parents in one of the few times they made a decision for me and said, no, no, this is the one, what you're going to do. Um, and I'm very grateful to that. And I'm very grateful to the opportunity I had to, to learn, uh, and to meet lifelong friends, um, that I made there and really had teachers that cared about me and kind of got me pointed in the right direction when I really could have headed south. And some of my friends who went to that school, their fathers and mothers were professors, more fathers. At that time, it was not real gender balanced, but I had one friend who had a mother who was a professor and a few friends who had fathers who had a professor. So for the first time, I saw that as a field of study. And um, then when I went to university, I took a, a class from one of my friend's dads that was a great class and it was a great learning experience and i'll always remember the he had a sit down final exam that was fantastic and it was in asian studies um but um but i said wow this is really cool and i read a lot of his articles that he wrote and heard stories about what he did and uh in china in the early years of the opening of china and it was really uh, fascinating to me um and so that was kind of when my eyes got open to it. But I thought, oh, I'll do this later in life. I'll do this, you know, in my 50s or 60s, right? I'll go work for a big company. I mean, really, if you would have asked me, Bela, what my plan was, it would have looked something like yours, right? Go work for a big company, go be curious, learn things, meet people, and then come back and be a professor. But kind of in the, and I guess as a bachelor, in my bachelor's degree, I, I drank way too much beer I smoked way too much marijuana. I was kind of this student that didn't take advantage. I went to the University of Michigan. I went to the business school there, which is one of the best in the world. And I didn't, I was mad at myself when I graduated because I didn't take advantage of all the educational opportunities that were there for me. And that was something I said, you know what? As I look back, I don't want to regret things in my life that I didn't do. I had a lot of fun and I met a lot of great people. But I didn't take advantage of that. And so this deep dive that you mentioned, I said, you know, at some point I'm going to go back to graduate school. And at some point I'm going to get my master's degree and I'm going to kind of make up for lost ground there. And I'm going to take extra care to to be a great student and to, to get some expertise. Um, so I worked for a couple of years on one of our earlier episodes. I mentioned I, I worked at a homeless shelter in Boston for a couple of years, which was an amazingly great experience for me. Learned a ton about myself, about society, about being a human being, about compassion and empathy, um, things that I wanted to make sure that were core values of my life developed in a couple of years there. Um, I probably wasn't very good at the job, but I learned a heck of a lot, right? Um, and then I went to get a master's. I, I got a year off. It was a really stressful job. And I got a year, I was going to go get a master's in public health and I was going to kind of be in a hospital administrator. And then I wound up seeing meeting some friends of my parents and they said, oh, you know, you, you should think about teaching like computers or technology at community college. I'm like, okay, you just need a master's and you can get a master's in a year 
and you could teach community college during the day and work in the afternoons like I was doing. I'm like, okay, that's cool. And then I met a really cool professor who got me involved in research. And that's where I learned really about how to do research. And she said, this isn't even the right master's program for you. And I went and got my PhD then. And the first day I met, I think some people know the story. I met my wife the very first day of, of in statistics class at my PhD at Michigan State. Um, and I had some great, great, great professors there. And that's where it really cemented. Because even when I started, I wasn't sure if I just wanted to use that to be an expert in business, right? And go work for a consulting company or um, work for a big company like you did at first. Um, or if I wanted to be a professor and do research and teach. And and, and in that, my time in East Lansing at Michigan State, I figured out that's definitely where I think I want to spend my time. And that's, and that's kind of the path that I followed. And I met, again, great people along the way that gave me great mentoring and career guidance. And I've been able to kind of do it, do it all in a lot of ways. I've been able to consult with big companies. I've been able to start businesses on my own. And I've been able to have, on my standards anyways, not on, I'm not world famous and people don't know my name and I haven't written the best articles in the field and that's okay. That's not necessarily what I'm interested in. You know, I haven't made a ton of money or anything like that. But for me, I've been able to teach the classes that I've wanted to teach, to do research on the topics that are interesting to me. Um, and I think to make the world, at least in some small way, maybe a better place than when I found it on trying to build really cool educational programs and, um, and, tr and try to treat students with respect and challenge and, and, and those things. So that's kind of, again, another long answer to a short question. But, um, but it really was this kind of, again, zigzaggy path. I didn't, I didn't know what I knew, but luckily I knew enough people that pointed me in the right direction. So one, one of the observations I have from, from my time in, in being a professor and a dean and stuff is, is that a fair number of faculty members, professors, are really extremely entrepreneurial, uh, but sort of at the individual level. And what I mean by that is, is you have to be, to be a successful professor, you have to be entrepreneurial. You have to develop courses, right? So you're, you're doing something new. You're, you're developing new content. You're putting things together. You're putting a product together that you're, you're in essence, selling to students. And I always say students vote with their feet, right? So unless the course is required, a required course where students have to take it, if you're, if, particularly if you're teaching electives, you know, your ability to put together a course that's of interest and, and uh, exciting to students, you know, is sort of putting together a good product offering. It's, it's sort of a product that you are selling to these students. The same thing with your research. You have to, you have to be very entrepreneurial and creative to write a proposal to some funding agency, right? Who's then going to fund your research uh, to 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 let you enable you to do that? And and I've always thought of of faculty members, successful faculty members that I've met during my career, as being wow, that person really is entrepreneurial. And I think if you ask 99% of the people, well, they're saying, no, uh, professors are not entrepreneurial. They're just the opposite. But I think, I think good ones really are entrepreneurial. Do you have a view on that? Yeah, it's a, it's a great observation, Baylon, uh, and a kind of a, a I think, a, a very true in a lot of ways. And I think the end result is that a lot of people get frustrated with universities for this reason. And a lot of people in, individually and societally 
get great benefits from the educational system, both in the U.S. and from what I've seen here in Germany, because of this fact. And it's the closest thing to being kind of a, a free agent within a system or being an entrepreneur within a set system that you can get. Um, and this whole idea of tenure, having a lifetime job, is in general really bad, right? It stifles innovation on paper, right? Um, it, it allows people to do things that, um, that aren't productive. Um, and there's all these criticisms at the tenure system, and they're right, okay? But the benefits are also there of being able to take risks, of being able to create really cool content and I think for every one example that students can hold up and say, well, this is a professor that shouldn't be a professor. They should be fired, right? And, you know, they're just like in every job and in every field, there are good ones and bad ones. And to some extent, what you see depends on where you stand. Somebody who might be lousy in the classroom is an amazing researcher or is a great program administrator. And you don't see that. Um, so I wish there was a, you could specialize more. So I wish there were people who were great at, 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 at universities that, and bringing in money for research. That's all they did. We didn't kind of make them teach, right? Maybe we had them help other professors who did the delivery with translating their research into teaching items or something like that. So it's like this totally double-edged sword, right? I have a lifetime job. I could easily kind of cash it out and do my own thing. Um, but I'm really motivated like you are by being curious and wanting to learn and wanting to, right? Every day I'm really excited to go to work. I have, for me, I couldn't imagine a better job better career. This is the best job in the world. And I'm so lucky that I get to do this every day. I get to control what I teach. I get to control what I do research on. I get to choose who I work with on different projects. And it is very, very entrepreneurial in my case. But I can see how people get frustrated with it, with the system. Okay. Yeah. But to, to tear it down fully would be bad too, because then all of a sudden you've got everybody looking at the short term and not looking, playing the long game, right? Professors tend to play the long game. And entrepreneurs, a lot of times, tend to play the long game, right? They take a big right. risk on something that only you see the benefits from, and, and you measure it not in weeks or semesters, but in years or even in decades. Right, right. Well, you know, it, it's interesting. As you were saying that, it got me thinking that oftentimes we judge uh, a group uh, on its outliers, right? We don't mm -hmm. we don't judge a group on its its sort of you know, uh, the, the ones that are within three standard deviations, right? We're, mm -hmm. we're always judging a group by the people that are out there six and seven standard deviations away from the norm. Uh, and, and I think your point kind of makes that right. Yeah, there are, there are, there are some, some people who are mailing it in, as I like to say, once they get tenure, mm -hmm. <laughs> right. And, uh, but there's a vast majority of them, uh, where that, that system works really well. Um, so is there a, I mean, in our most recent, uh, podcast, the one just before this one, episode number 98, we, we interviewed a person that you had an entrepreneurial experience with, and you were part of a, a group that started a business. So have you had other entrepreneurial sort of, uh, adventures in your, in your life? Yeah. The, the first one that I really got involved with and kind of pulled into this, well, there were a couple of early ones when I was a professor at George Mason, right after grad school. Um, and I got my first job as a professor uh, at George Mason. And um, 
one person was that I got involved with. I kind of was working on two simultaneously and it wasn't my intention. I, I studied big businesses. I studied organizations. I didn't study startups. I wasn't, I wasn't really even interested in entrepreneurship. Um, when I got my PhD, it wasn't part of what I studied. Um, and it wasn't part of what I was teaching, uh, early in my teaching career. Um, but I had two different people that, uh, one that I knew, uh, from my PhD program and, uh, Tim had an idea for uh, starting an e-learning startup. And this was in 1996, 1997, 1998. Yeah, that um, was early in the e It was very early. Yeah. And it was too early. But it was awesome. I mean, we did a fantastic e-learning product. We made sales. We had investments. Um, and it was great. But it was just too early. And the company didn't. Um, really make it out of uh, made it to the launch and it was and it had revenue but it never really after a couple of years it looked like it just wasn't going to be profitable um, so that shut down he has gone on to be an incredibly successful entrepreneur in the healthcare sector um, and one of his companies just had a major one plus billion dollar investment um, by Boots CVS into his um, into his healthcare company which is amazing um, the second was um these two brothers and their father approached me after a talk I gave at the Smithsonian uh, in D.C. Um, and they had this idea for a startup and wanted me to get involved. And it was actually also too early for its time. And it was a startup that um, uh, that matched uh, people who wanted jobs done with people who wanted jobs to be done. And it was almost like um, uh, Postmates or something like that now. But again, it was too early and we raised, they raised money and I, I was, you know, at both times I wasn't the actual doer. I was a professor, my full-time job and just really advising them in depth and spending summers working on this and stuff like that. And so that also launched and, and, and was really cool. Um, and both brothers went on to really great careers as well as, as entrepreneurs. Both are still, um, uh, one is also in, in telemedicine and healthcare. Uh, and the other is real big into blockchain. And that was kind of interesting. So it's all these people that I meet that I learn stuff from. And those were kind of early, my early entrepreneurial experiences. And I had a bunch of other small ones that I played different roles in. And then I did this this car business with Doug uh, that we talked about in nine, episode 98. Um, and then I just kind of wrapped up one uh, that we had another guest, Charlotte Hayden, one of my former students, and uh, helped her launch uh, uh, Better Flavor Company. And that was fun. Um, and then I, right now I have three or four other kind of startup, uh, uh, people that I'm working with kind of like you, I get, you know, one or two a month that I, I try to give some guidance to. And sometimes there's a good connection and I stay on as a board member or something like that. But, uh, but so, yeah, so it's always been kind of these ins and outs and these small connections and different roles. And I think the thread that runs through that is just meeting amazing people and learning an amazing amount with them and from them, um, and just trying to offer what little expertise I have. A lot of times it's the wrong advice, but sometimes it's right. And more, I'm a more process guy and helping people develop processes that work and then let them fill in the gaps. And I think that's where I add my value in the startup world. Yeah. yeah. So my, here's my last question, Mike. Mm -hmm. So um, what's one thing that you're willing to share uh, about Mike Wasserman that most people do not know? Hmm. What's the, I'm pretty open. There's not a lot that that's hidden. Hmm. You stumped me on this one, Bela. What wouldn't I know? Uh -huh. um, stumped the professor. Because, yeah, because I mean, like in my personal life, everybody knows I have an amazing, 
um, wife, an amazing partner, and I married up, and I work really hard to make sure that I give her lots of good reasons to stay with me until uh, we're old and gray. Um, I think many people know I left. My, the interesting thing is I think immigrating from the U.S. And, you know, two years ago, people thought I was nuts, right? They're like, why did you do this? And now everybody's saying, okay. <laughs> and I don't – I think that was – it's not that I'm so smart or whatever. A lot of it's just circumstances. Um, everybody knows that knows me knows I like to drink beer. Um, I like to cook. I like plants, growing stuff. Um, that's really, it really stumps me. I mean, I think even people, I think I've talked a little bit on some of the episodes too about kind of people in my family have struggled with mental health and I've been really open about that. And I had a, one of my stepsisters committed suicide and a cousin committed suicide and I've had a lot of mental health struggles in my family. My dad struggled, at the, had a great life and a great career, and then the last couple of years really struggled with his mental health. Um, so maybe that's kind of just the the message is that I think I have had I have had a great career and I've been really lucky, but I've had the same struggles in my family that lots of us have. And um, maybe that's one of the keys is just being open with people and sharing things. So there's really nothing hidden, Bela. You know, what you see is what you get. I'm kind of a short round guy with uh lots of energy and uh and with just lots of normal things have happened to him and been really lucky to make it through and to have great friends and great family to to appreciate um what we have and try to help people that struggle that are especially struggling right now and i don't know that's kind of that's a crappy answer bela but that's what i got that's a great answer are you kidding that's a great answer it's a great way to close out this uh this episode um and uh, I hope our listeners have enjoyed uh, this little uh, sharing that Mike and I have done here uh, for our 99th episode. And uh, we really appreciate you joining us and uh, hope you found it thought provoking. And uh, of course, if you have any questions uh, about anything we've talked about or like to touch base with us, our email is bela.and.mike at gmail.com. So, uh, and if you haven't subscribed, hey, please do. Uh, we really appreciate all of our listeners. Uh, we, do, we do this for you. Uh, we find it very enjoyable, and we love getting feedback from all of you. And uh, so signing off from upstate New York, uh, Mike, uh, have a great week, and we'll see you soon. Thanks, Bela. You too, from here in Münster, Germany. Auf Wiedersehen. <laughs>